0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning. Kind of, it was kind of a good morning. Um, there's a question. I think the answer is um, pretty easy. So think about this. Uh, what aspect of a person's life, or maybe someone that you know you, you deeply care about, what aspect of a person's life has both the, the potential of tremendous joy and, at the same time, the capacity to, to bring uh, great sorrow? Okay? What aspect of a person's life could bring them both joy and sorrow in extreme ways? The answer, probably most of us would agree, it would, it would be a relationship, a deep, uh, committed relationship with a member of the opposite sex. Some of our highest highs and our lowest lows are found there. Right? They can bring us uh, tears, tears of joy and tears of sorrow and grief. And then, and then you um, compound that with the power of sexual intimacy. If that is involved in that relationship, then the extremes become even more so, unimaginable in, in its effect. And so if you, think, if you think about that, and I think most of us would agree that's certainly one of the, the uh, aspects of our lives, experiences of our lives that, that have that capacity, then you have to stop and you ask, okay, um, what would God do if that were to be true? I mean, if, if, the, if there is so much mystery in marriage, if there is uh, wonder in sexual intimacy, if there's so much uh, passion and, and, and things that m- make us marvel in our relationships with one another, would He just say, okay, good luck? <laughs> Or wouldn't he? Wouldn't he say, you know, I have I have some ideas about how this should work. As a matter of fact, I designed this, I made this, and I have a way to make this work for you. He would be that way, right? I mean, if he if he knows us, and in, in light of what he's done for us, he made us and he loved us to the point where he saved us. He provided salvation for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in the Bible that he has provided for us the ability to, to have every you know, like uh, the fullness of every aspect of life. And holiness in that. And so God brings us a a way to know uh, a member of the opposite sex intimately and fully and deeply. And He does that. He's an expert in this. And and He does that in this book that we're going to look at this summer called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And it is part of the wisdom literature and appropriately so. Wisdom literature teaches us how to uh, live wisely, the book of uh, Proverbs teaches us how to live. Psalms teaches us, in many respects, how to feel appropriately. Job teaches us, as one of the wisdom literature, Job teaches us how to suffer well. And Song of Solomon teaches us how to love, love our mates effectively, love well. Song of Songs, it's, it's, um, it's a superlative. It means, it's like saying king of kings, the ultimate king. It's like saying holy of holies, it's the ultimate holiness place. And uh, Song of, Sol- Song of Songs is, is that. It is the, is the perfect writings. It's the best of, of Solomon. That's why he names it this way. It is uh, eight chapters of powerful, vivid, practical ways to live with one another. Okay? And by the way, when you read it, we'll see this in our very first time together today. You see it's not in order. It's a, it's a random kind of a love letter, but it, it includes kind of the whole story of a person's Uh, marriage and relationship. It starts, well, it kind of starts uh, at the end, but then it goes to their courtship and then their engagement and then uh, their wedding ceremony, their wedding night. They have an argument. We'll spend two chapters just learning how to argue effectively. And then it talks about, you know, intimacy all the way and and kind of leaving this life at the peak of your love and, and depth with your mate. Now, in light of the subject matter here, and Sunday morning, in light of um, the people that'll be attending on any given Sunday, you know, Sunday morning will be rated G and maybe even uh, bump into PG. But since we are going to need to talk about his wedding night with his bride, we're going to add a, a time together on Wednesday. On, sorry, on Sunday night, June 28th, it'll be from six to seven thirty. We would love everyone to come. Um, of, we'll go to R at that point, probably. And we'll want, if you want to have your children um, checked into the child care, you're going to need to sign up online. We'll have a limited amount of child care. We'll, put as many, we'll have as much as we possibly can, but you have to two, do two things. First, mark your calendar so that you'll come on June 28th, 6 to 730. And, and if you have children, you want to bring them to date child care, then you have to sign up for that. Okay? You don't want to miss that one. We're going to have a lot of fun that Sunday, and we'll have a f- the freedom to talk about some things that are brought up in this book. Okay? The picture in Song of Solomon is this beautiful metaphor where we're actually, vicariously, we watch and listen as the two lovers interact with one another. And they will be using, it is poetry, and so we'll be using vivid expressions uh, to help us see and smell and taste and touch and, and feel the fullness of what uh, we're supposed to have have in a relationship. So we're supposed to just watch and listen and experience vicariously what's happening here. Now, in the in the first section, we're going to uh, look at today, uh, chapter one, from two until I'm sorry, chapter one, verse two to chapter two, verse seven. That's one section. You, you can see that in a lot of commentaries. They'll put that together. And in that section, we're going to find two major themes and even applications, that will carry its way throughout the entire eight chapters. We're going to see two things that happen early on, and then they just get progressively uh, more, I guess, distinct. And, and deeper as we go through this, okay? And the first one that we're gonna learn about, we'll see early on, and that is that if you wanna be a great lover, okay? Great love looks eye to eye. We see right out of, right out of the chute that, that the man and the woman are on equal footing. There's not a higher or a lower. If anyone's looking up at the other person, then the other person stoops down. It, it is, a, it is a, and we know this, you'll see this if you read some scholarship, We know this because of the strange way that this book is written. First of all, the woman is the first to speak. Keep in mind the culture and the date of this book, about 930 B.C., but the woman is the first to speak. She initiates. She has about 53% of of the lines that will be spoken here. It's really her story. She's the lead. And then the male responds, and and they go back. He has about 39%. There's a third character in this, and it's called the Daughters of Jerusalem, and they're They're observers that are making comments so that we can maybe better appreciate what's happening. But scholars have this has been a controversial issue with this book for years because there's so much that she talks about. The the woman is equal in stature, and this is rather radical. Again, for if you look at the ancient Near East, it's it's ancient; it's a long time ago, and it's in the Near East. This would turn heads. Now, with, I want you to see that as we go through the first uh, three verses together, 2, 3, and 4, and I want you to see that right out that there's this explosion of vivid words that, that will be used to describe her love for her husband, and she'll use sensual words that, um, that bring about, you know, taste and smell both, and, and, and she's doing this. Uh, and she has, at this point, she's in the fullness of the confidence of her marriage. You need to know that we start, one writer says, it's a beginning, but without a beginning. I would say it's towards the end of her marriage, and she, and she, because she has the full confidence of who she is in, in the presence of her husband. And she can say this, verse 2 through 4, she says, let him kiss me <laughs> with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is perfume poured out, therefore all the maidens love you. Take me away with you, let's hurry, let the king bring me to his bedroom chambers. So you see, right away, she's talking about taste and smell, you see, you, you are, your kisses are intoxicating to me, they are more so, and they taste better than any wine I ever could. Your, your aroma is like perfume, it's your name, your name is like perfume, and So, um, name being your reputation, your honor among people, uh, like perfume, they they smell you coming and they know when you've left. You leave this character in your wake, and all the maidens love you. They envy me for being your wife, but you belong to me, and I belong to you. So, I I want, you to, I want you to see in those first three verses, again, it's, it's rather startling, especially if we go back. That's why uh, scholars will say that this marriage is based on equality, and it was in, in great contrast to, right, the stereotypes of gender and gender values at the time, and so sometimes this book was thought not to be part of the Bible because of that radical nature. This, this relationship is ideal, some will say that it is, it is more like Adam and Eve than it would be about Solomon and a queen because, because these two are uncorrupt and uncontaminated by prejudice. She, says, she doesn't say, kiss me. She says, let him kiss me. But what, what you need to see is that the relationship is an even match, right? There's relational strength on her part, and he reciprocate, reciprocates. There is great power in this. Great marriages, great marriages, okay, biblical intimacy is its foundation is this understanding of equality with one another. We have different roles, but there's this appreciation for value, that we're equal in value. Different types of personalities, different, you know, very maleness and very femaleness, but we love the difference. Okay, In in the 20 years, the, the, the marriage ministry here was formalized about 20 years ago, and we see this as one of the primary issues that we see in premarriage counseling and marriage counseling and if we if we see an imbalance in premarriage counseling we'll sometimes try to put a stop to the wedding because this has to be made right before you get married because so many marriages so many marriages are unhealthy because because they're not equal there's someone that uh, is a giver and someone that's a taker someone that's a boy and someone that's a mother someone uh, that is uh, the you know, to be pampered, and one is the provider, and 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 it's it's not equal. It's not it's not right. Some sometimes marriages are built on a person that needs to be fixed, and a person that is a fixer upper. And if that's your marriage, you you have to you have to go and get counseling so that the fixer upper needs to not do that, and the person that thinks that they're going to sit or be passive in this, they need to step up and play their part. Because marriage intimacy and the strength of, and the power of marriages is, is built on equality, looking, looking eye to eye. Marriage is likened in the Bible to being yoked with someone. And what that means is that uh, you're, you're pulling, you're two, you're two cows and you're pulling, because life is hard, right? Marriage is hard and you're pulling. And you need to be pulling equal and in the same direction. And we see that right away, right away in this couple. The first sentences are, are, are about the power and the courage and the, let's say better, confident, confidence in this woman and her ability to talk to her man. When she wants something, she simply asks for it. There's no, because he's looking her in the eye. He's not looking down. There's no bullies here. right? There's no emotional bully thing going on with, with passive-aggressive or even aggressiveness. They're both confident with each other. But here's the, here's the power of this story. Here's what's great about this story. That's, again, that's, a, thing that's, in, that's a, a value that's in this book, and it carries all the way through the book. But the second aspect of this book that you must grasp onto early is that this is not always the power of the story is their equality was not always the case. Those first three verses that we looked at, that is probably at the end or towards the end of their marriage. When they started, so the next few verses now we're going to look at, we're going to see that it didn't start that way. Uh, the young lady, the, the girl, she, she, didn't, she was not confident in who she was. She was not secure. Something, powerfully, something powerful transformed her. And, and, and she, what happens is she starts remembering back and the story. We'll pick it up, I think, in verse 5. But she starts remembering back when they met. And we know that she's remembering back, you know, kind of grammatically we know. Because, first of all, she's talking about herself. She doesn't do that in very much of the book. Great. And she's, she's talking to the daughters of Jerusalem that I introduced, this kind of this choir that's over here telling us what to think or how to think. And she's very defensive. She's filled with shame. And and it's, again, what's that, what ha- who she is in verse 5 is not who we left in verse 4, so something happened in her life. But let's look at her as a young girl in verse 5, as a young lady, all right, as a maiden. Verse 5, she says, dark am I, I, yet lovely daughters of, she's talking to the daughters of Jerusalem, dark, like, like the tents of Kedar those were black, made out of black wool, uh, like tent curtains in, in Solomon's palace, those were purple, okay? It's not like, look. We all can't be Irish, okay? And that's, that is not what she's saying. She doesn't wish to have my skin. It's deeper than that. She says, verse 6, do not stare at me, daughters of Jerusalem, right? Do not stare at me because I'm dark. Because I'm darkened by the sun. My, my mother's sons are angry with me, and they make me care for the vineyards. And my own vineyard, I have to neglect. So, she, so she's ashamed that she has to work in the field, and what, what, this, what she's referring to is there's a class and education and sophistication gap. And she says, I might be pretty, but, I, but it's obvious by my appearance. And you'll look at me, you'll see how dark and sunburned I am. And that is projecting shame. And she says, I don't look at me. I can't even see myself. Because I know you daughters of Jerusalem are, are pale and kept And educated and sophisticated, and I have to work my brother's vineyard, and I can't even take care of myself. In our modern language, you would say, please don't stare at my farmer's tan. (laughs) Because I'm ashamed of everything that it projects, every aspect about this. I I can't I can't, you know, I, I can't live with this. But see, but That's where she was. And so there was some kind of transition that takes place, right? If that's where she was, she was hiding and running from anything that might uh, bring attention to her, something must have changed in her life. Something must have revolutionized how she felt because verses 2 through 4 is a confident woman who can ask for what she wants. What was that? What changed her? Words powerful, loving words by the man who loves her. I want you to see the contrast between what you just saw and 9 through 11 when the man finally speaks. These will be his first words. He will have a nickname for her, my darling. And let's see what happens to her soul. Verse 9 says, and then, this is, this is the man speaking. These are his first words. When I liken to you, my darling, that's her nickname, When I liken to you, my darling, you are a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings and your neck with strings of jewels. (laughs) Well, my darling is um, affectionate. I'm not sure I'd call uh, my wife the mare uh, a horse. But this this was a rather famous story that he's referring to. Uh, uh, Stallions, male horses is what pulled the Egyptian uh, war chariots. And these were glorious steeds, right? They, they stood strong, and they were a sign of courage and, and discipline, right, and kind of military power. And when the pharaoh would run his war horses, at, with, you know, pulling those chariots, it was, it was uh, famously unnerving to his opponents. They lost before they started. Well, in a famous battle of Qatar... The prince of Qatar knew that once those chariots rolled out and the stallions stood their men down, they wouldn't have a chance. And so what did he do? He set free a a mare in heat and had her run back and forth in front of the chariot, the stallions. They went crazy. They lost all of their composure, all of their discipline. They're slamming into each other. You go, hey, look at me. Hey, wait, you ever seen me? Yeah. (laughs) Doing all the crazy stuff. And listen, Guitar would have won that battle, except where the Egyptian um, generals said, kill that mare. <laughs> and the mare was killed, the female horse was killed, and, and the stallions were like, hey, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so back to the battle. <laughs> True story, no, really. And, and so what he's saying is, you are like a, a mare in the stable of Pharaoh's stallions. You know, your beauty... <laughs> It wrecks all men that see you. We, we can't stay focused. You, you leave us. You are unsettling. You are, we are out of control because of your beauty. These words change her. It, it changes not only her perception of herself, as you'll see, but now the daughters of Jerusalem are seeing that the king has stated what beauty is. And so they say in verse 11... Uh, we will make you, uh, we're going to make you earrings of gold, uh, studded with silver. So we're going we're to go along with this. Everybody's changing their view of her because of his words. In verses 12 and 14, we won't look at those, but she's going to use all sorts of poetry to um, incite our, our sense of smell, the most powerful of our senses to, for memory's sake. And, and she's going to enrapture her love for him in the various aromas that uh, that he has, but she's changing. Okay, she's initiating. She's saying what she believes about him. She's not shy. She's not passive anymore. She will not apologize again for being a, a country girl that lacks education and sophistication. Her shoulders are back, her head is high because her lover has given her a name, darling. And he has stated his case amongst many people you can see this, uh, the, the dialogue starts to quicken, right? He's going to make her into a queen. And the dialogue starts getting faster and faster, and they're, now they're starting to get a common language together. They're just going back and forth, calling each other darling and beloved, and no, you're beautiful. No, you're handsome. Look what happens in verse 15 and 16. Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming you are. And, and you know, but what I love about this book is how um, insightful, how deeply psychological it is, and how consistent it is with the way we uh, experience transformation. Because while all this momentum is going up, you know, in the, in the, in the context of the power of, of loving and encouraging words on her soul, she slips back. And now she'll speak about herself, right? But she likens herself to a flower, a common wildflower. So the woman says, I am a rose, the rose of Sharon, like a lily in the valley. Again, it's a compliment to herself in many respects, but it is, it's, it's a wildflower. I'm a, I'm a country girl. And there's back and forth. You'll see the city versus country in this, the sophistication as opposed to right, um, the simple life. And he won't have anything to do with it. And so he'll take her, her uh, you know, kind of a dig at herself being this lily, and he'll set her apart. Fine, I'll, I'll let you have the lily, but I'm not going to leave it there. So the man says in verse 2, Like a lily among the thorns is my darling amongst other women. Sure you are. You're, you're a lily. But you're a lily amongst thorns. You're mine. I'm yours. She's safe with him. Because she belongs to him. And she gains her confidence in that, and her soul is swelling to its fullness. And now she can declare who she is. And and so this very famous line, you'll see this in song sometimes, verse 4, let him lead me to the banquet hall, a very public place, and let the banner over me, let his banner over me be love. In combat, right, in, in military expeditions, they'll put up these banners so that you'd know who was where. And sometimes in the context of conquest, they would put a banner stating that this belongs to me. And she says, you have taken me out to a public place, this banquet hall, and you've placed a banner over me, and it's love. She can't, she can't stay the way she's been. The girl, ashamed of her farmer's tan and all that it meant, is now... Standing under this beautiful statement of his ownership on her, she's become. She's not used to this level of not just not affection, but the power of loving words spoken deeply into a human soul. And she says, "I'm lovesick. I'm unsettled." And so, in in five and six, she says that, and then in seven, she'll say a warning. But she says. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint in love. His left hand is, his left arm is underneath my head, and my right arm, he embraces me. It, she wants to be held by him. And with, with all the acceleration of this relationship, as fast as it's going, and as deep as they speak to one another, and as, as revolutionizing as the vocabulary has been upon her, she says, can't go any farther, right? Look what he says. She says in verse 7, daughters of Jerusalem, listen to me. I charge you by the gazelles and by the does that are in the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it is so desires. There's a time and a place, and we've hit, (laughs) we've gone as far as we can go at this time and this place. There are boundaries to this kind of love, and we can share words we can't share anything more. We don't want to wreck this by by putting it outside of God's will. I don't want to feel or touch you uh, until until we say our vows. She's going to say that line three times in this, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. She's going to constantly remind her friends, these other girlfriends of hers watching this love affair take place, we're going to stay within the boundaries. You do too. This this relationship is like a race car, you know, one of these supercars that that they're building more and more these days. And I don't know a lot about the engineering of these automobiles, but I know there's two primary values in these cars. One is to make them go super fast, and the other is to help them stop super fast. (laughs) Because, (laughs) I mean, some of these automobiles, when you hit the brakes, they'll throw you right through the windshield. Because if you're going to go that fast, you have to stop that fast. She's doing that. She's saying, both feet on the brake pedals. Look, my little friends, daughters of Jerusalem, don't ruin a great thing. Don't ruin this. We'll talk more about that weeks to come. But let's, let's review, okay, for a second. Uh, this is a vibrant, intimate, loving relationship that when we see the end of it, it is enviable. It, it, it is something that we all long for and lust for. It is vibrant and, pass- and, and passionate. And for that to happen, it has to be eye to eye right? We have to mutually respect each other. We're on the same level. But it didn't start that way. That's the power of this story. It didn't start that way. She shows up insecure and ashamed of who she is and where she's from, and she is transformed. She, she, She is not left there. It is the power of his loving words, his understanding of who she is, and he speaks to those inside of her soul, And she ignites to that and fills up who she was meant to be. It is not good that man would be alone because he can't, because love transforms. It's not good for women to be alone because love can transform. And without sometimes many people, without a mate that can do this, they can't be transformed. So while the first lesson is you have to see, you know, Your mate, if you're looking for a mate, you have to have this eye to eye. If you're married right now, you have to see eye to eye. The second lesson is the power of love. That's what this book is about. You'll see it throughout. The power of praise, the power of praise dominates this book. The praise for one another and the mutual respect—they'll be going back and forth, like almost one upping each other in praise. And they're going to be praising each other for their worth, and they're going to be praising each other to reduce insecurities they might have. They will be praising each other's appearance. They will be praising each other's ambitions in life. They will be praising each other for encouragement. They will praise each other for um, um, uh, reassurance and and strength of soul. Praise. Praise is the theme of this book, the power of praise by a loved one and how it, it, it absolutely, absolutely changes a person. That's what this book is about. This love is stimulating. It is intoxicating. It changes the ordinary into the extraordinary. It changes the mundane into the spectacular. It is exhilarating. It is absolutely overwhelming. That's the power of love. That's the power of God's love for this. It is mutual respect, and it is praise. And we all want that. We all need to learn how to love. We all need to learn how to be loved. Let me tell you a story. It's a beautiful story of of this. I mean, it's a real-life story. Um, Elizabeth Barrett, you might know the name. Elizabeth Barrett was born in 1806. She was the oldest of 12 children. She was raised in a very affluent home. Uh, but an overconnected family, a smothering father, and um, she was a genius. Um, by ten, she was reading Shakespeare and uh, Paradise Lost. By uh, twelve, something happened to her lungs, and she caught a disease that she would live with her whole life and made her rather sickly. Uh, I think at fourteen, she felt she was saddling her pony and hit her spine, and uh, could look look like she might uh, be crippled for her her life. Later, her younger brother died, and that, that just broke her. But she was a genius, and, and she wanted to learn uh, what the Old Testament said, so she, saw, she taught herself Hebrew, and then the New Testament, so she taught herself Greek and read the classics. And after her brother died, and she was broken because of that, she decided to just be an invalid and a recluse, and she never left her own bedroom for five years. But she wrote these poems, and, and they were released, and, and they were called poems. She's creative, but not in titles. Uh, <laughs> and one of the people that, uh, that read the poems and that was actually mentioned in, in them was Robert, um, Robert Browning. And so Robert Browning wrote her as she was laying in bed, and they went back and forth. And in 20 months, they wrote 574 letters back and forth. Elizabeth's parents would have nothing to do with this. The plan was that the children would never leave. And so Robert, he swept in and stole her. And they eloped to Italy, where she became Elizabeth Barrett Browning, one of the most famous English poets in all of, you know, Western civilization. She wrote these poems about her love for him. She never spoke to her father again. Her father never spoke to her again. That's what happens in overconnected families. But what's tremendous about the story is Robert's love for her transformed her. She became better physically, emotionally, spiritually. She could even walk. She she was healthy enough to have a child. Her most famous works, you might know, um, uh, poems from Portuguese, the sonnets of Portuguese. And, And you might know the last one, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways, that's sonnet number 43. Sonnet number one is about her life before Robert and how even she was startled by what took place in her life. It reads like this. She goes, oh, the sad years, the melancholy years who by turns had flung a shadow across my whole life. Straight away I was aware that there was a mystic shape that stood behind me and drew me backward by my hair, a voice of that mastery. Even as I fought, it held me and said, Guess who holds thee? Death, I said. And it said with a silver tongue, Not death, but love. Not death, but love. Because love is stronger than death. The story was about her whole life realizing when she dedicated herself as an invalid and a recluse that she had settled that a slow, painful death would be her fate. And then something grabbed her from behind and pulled her back and said, Now who owns you? Not death, but love. We quote her famous psalms and poems on a regular basis in our country because her life is the story of the power of love, of how Robert didn't look down at her, and she was his equal, and he was hers. And he changed her. He changed her. We need to learn how to love. We need to learn how to be loved. And this book is going to help us do that.